clubhouse. Welcome back to A Galaxy Far, Far Away. This is the How Uncivilized podcast. This is Paul, and I'm here with my friend Mark. Hey, Paul. Thanks for coming back for another round after the first season of Obi-Wan Kenobi. We're here to talk about the first of two seasons, guaranteed two seasons, of Andor. I am what you made me, Paul. (laughs) I hope I made you an Andor fan, because so far, I am really digging this show. Yeah, me too. Man, it's good to have some new Star Wars content. Aren't they dropping the uh, Tales of the Jedi too next month, I think, right? Yes, I think that's right. And Bad Batch not too long after that. Steady stream right into the veins. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I'm, a, I'm a consumer of the Disney Plus stuff, for better or for worse. And to some extent, I was looking forward to She-Hulk. And so far, that show has just failed to amuse me in any real way. I don't watch superheroes to be lawyers. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> I haven't uh, kept up with the Marvel stuff, but I was thinking about how this show, you wouldn't see something like Andor in the Marvel universe. They haven't taken that kind of risk. So good yeah. on the Star Wars folks, right? Well, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what Disney Marvel does with, say, Daredevil, uh, but particularly Punisher. You know, these are carryover characters from the Netflix shows, and there already is a commitment to carry forward, you know, the Charlie Cox version of Daredevil into a new show on Disney Plus, which is great. They've already shown, you know, the uh, Vincent D'Onofrio version of the Kingpin on the- Oh, he was the best bad guy. I really liked that season one of Daredevil with him. God, yeah. that was awesome. So I was excited to see their, I guess they're both coming back. I didn't, I didn't know the Punisher thing was a go. That's pretty cool. I don't think it's, I don't know that it's a go, but they did have a couple seasons of Punisher on Netflix and Punisher figured very big into one of the seasons of Daredevil. But he's sort of morally and functionally in the in a similar space to Andor, which is why I bring him up. He's not going to make friends everywhere he goes. <laughs> I just, yeah, you got to get you. Is it going to be Shane? You know, hey, Rick, man. Hey, let me ask you a question, man. <laughs> so far, they've only committed to Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio, which is good. It's a good start. I'd love to see Rosario Dawson back in there. Um, really, I don't, except for... Um, Iron Fist. I don't know who I'd really want to change out for someone else. Uh, a lot of that casting was great. Yeah, I guess they could just have all their actors play, you know, just play different characters in both in Marvel and uh, Star Wars. <laughs> That'd be cool. Like Rosario, right? She's, yeah, yeah, so that's good. right. Well, she's super talented. We just finished uh, watching um, Dope Sick on Hulu, and she plays a major character in that also. So she's busy, very busy. Anyhow, we are not here to talk about Marvel. We are here to talk about Andor. So I have to admit that a couple years ago when Andor the show was first announced by Disney on their slate of upcoming shows, I didn't know why they, of all the, you know, Rogue One characters, why Andor was so compelling that they would want to do a deep dive into him, especially like the solo movie, which I enjoyed a lot was not considered completely necessary by a lot of fans. And so they skipped it. 
And that's freaking Han Solo. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is just Andor, Cassian Andor. What were your thoughts when you first heard that Andor was going to be a show? Yeah, no, I was the same with you. I wasn't super duper excited about it. But then I thought they haven't really done any, you know, live action stuff about the rebellion. I guess, you know, there's been the Star Wars Rebels animated. So doing a darker version of the rebellion, I, I was like, okay, I could see that. And as it evolved and it, I got, when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh yeah, this looks good. I think there's a, there's a common thread there, which is a guy named Tony Gilroy. Tony Gilroy was the man who saved Rogue One. Rogue One, after it's all said and done in terms of all of the Disney era Star Wars movies, Rogue One seems to be the one that most people agree is hands down a pretty good movie. You know, after people have reconsidered what their original feelings were on all the sequels and Solo, Rogue One seems to be the only one that people are like, yeah, okay, fine. That one's actually good. I mean, it's like, if you don't like U2, you probably don't like music. And if you don't like Rogue One, you probably don't like Star Wars, you know? That's funny. <laughs> well, Rogue One had a sordid history, you might recall. A man named Gareth Edwards, the guy who made Godzilla, directed Rogue One. And Disney thought it wasn't quite done yet <laughs> when, when they saw his, his first cut of it. And so they brought in Tony Gilroy to finish it and he wound up getting like a screenwriter credit he wound up directing new scenes he wound up in the editing bay there's some of this thought that this shift to tony gilroy's vision from gareth edwards vision is part of why the rogue one trailers don't match the movie at all <laughs> did you notice mm. that no, that's, that's interesting. I heard about the story, how he saved it. And they were a little bit hush-hush on what he did and didn't do, right? So, but Oh, he'll tell you. He, yeah, okay. if you read an interview with him, he'll tell you. He came into it as a hired gun, um, not a Star Wars fan, just a guy with good writing chops. He is well-known for having written several of the Bourne movies, like all of them. He also wrote and directed a movie called Michael Clayton, which is a George Clooney movie that it's very dramatic. It's a thriller. It ends on a climax, but you still wish you had a few minutes left of the movie to know how, what was going to happen after he walked out of that room, <laughs> you know? So Tony Gilroy and his brother, Dan Gilroy make, make things together. They made a movie called uh, Nightcrawler. People enjoyed J Jake Gyllenhaal was in that about a, a, a like a, like, what was he like a crime videographer something like that crime scene videographer oh yeah yeah it was kind of a weird movie i like that movie so he comes in fixes rogue one only gets a screenwriting credit doesn't get any directing credit even though he'll tell you he directed new scenes for sure fast forward a little bit and they announce Andor is being developed as a show and i don't know if you've noticed about the disney um announcements but not all of those announcements make it to the screen. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this well, one is a spiring thriller to me. Like, that's what, and, yeah. you know, and all the reviews I saw coming out before I watched it was the word gritty, mm -hmm. you know? And then we see someone get shot in the face. Oh, yeah, it's gritty. <laughs> so at some point after this show was announced and before it really got full on into production, Disney was about to drop it just quietly take it off the slate. 
like they've kind of done with Patty Jenkins' Rogue Squadron. I thought that was going to be a movie. Whatever it was going to be, it is not going to be that now. Hmm. (laughs) Fast forward a little bit, and they have, behind the scenes, asked Tony Gilroy if he's willing to come take another look at the Andor show. And remember, he's, he doesn't care about Star Wars as a, as a franchise, but he says, yes, he'll do it. And now all of a sudden you got a show and he's credited as producer and creator, writing credit on several episodes. And this show very much resembles Rogue One, which made a concerted effort to resemble A New Hope in terms of the real sets, the uh, level of technology that's put on screen, like in like the display screens and the kind of the worn out plastic casing for the various computers and stuff like that. Rogue One meant to do that. And I think this show does a really good job of doing what Rogue One did. Yeah, I liked what he said where in an interview where he said it's basically like they wrote a novel. Oh, it's going to be two seasons, 12 episodes in each season four directors for each of the three for three episodes each and it's like uh yeah kind of like a mystery thriller that plays out in the star wars universe and so i i thought that conceptually was sounded great when you watch it just tonally the serious nature of the characters the main character being this hustler who you know he's trying to do something good but he's willing to do whatever he has to do to stay alive It reminded me a lot of like a 70s cop thriller, which jives with what you said you read. Yeah, that's an interesting take on it. Yeah, definitely. uh, You know, something like that. The phrase slow burn popped into my head. The fact that they released three episodes makes sense because it really took those three to establish everything because it does have a kind of a slower pace, you know, like you said, a more realistic feel and they don't dumb it down. Like you kind of have to pay attention to what's going on or you may miss some things. So yeah, I thought the tone and the feel of it is really good. Also to me, I mean, I like what, what they're doing with uh, Mando and the, the volume is really cool, but man, this looks so good because it's real sets, real costumes. Um, I think it looks a lot better. What do you think? Totally agree. Totally agree. Once you know that the Mandalorian is almost completely done in what they call the volume, which is a brand new futuristic take on the, on green screening, but not... Once you know that and you know kind of where to look to see that, then you realize beyond a certain point, about 10 feet behind the Mandalorian, he can't interact with whatever that is, whether it's a docking bay or a cave or outside on a dune, whatever. He can't do it because it's not really there. And here, I couldn't tell where the city started and where it ended on Ferrix or in the red light district or whatever, you know, it all looked very much like they built a lot of set, which I wanted to hit first was basically your hot take on the first three episodes. I totally agree about the three needing to have been shown together. I'm sure that was always the plan, but there might've been somebody, you know, Disney arguing that, no, no, we should string these people out. Uh, And I thought, that would have been a terrible piece of advice to listen to. <laughs> these these three really needed to be seen together. I liked it. I mean, I guess as far as some of the scenes that just stick out, if you're talking about the first three episodes. Well, um, actually, like how about the whole oh, thing? Sure. How, about, how about the thing in totality in terms of not scenes, but just what stood out to you about the filmmaking or the show? You know, I think the characters, I mean, my main thing from those first three episodes, carrying over into Rogue One, the, the Cassian Andor 
character, you know, he kind of had this kind of like, oh, yeah, that scene, remember in Rogue One where, what was it, Chirrut? What was, how did you pronounce his name? Chirrut? 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 The blind Jedi? Right. Yeah, I, so I don't he, know, but yes, I know who you mean. Well, there was like that one part where he's, uh, he could sense like the dark side around Cassian because he was about to go assassinate Galen Erso. And, uh, you know, he just had this kind of dark energy about him. He was, as you said, he would do anything for the rebellion and maybe he crossed the line, kind of like Saul Guerrero type of thing. And so I liked that we saw that in him. And then we were learning about where that fire uh, and that hatred uh, came from towards the empire. And I, we haven't gotten the full story yet, but we got these flashbacks, right? Where we're learning about what happened there. And there's a, he's, he's looking for a sister, you know, ultimately, we know that in Rogue One, he kind of gets, you could call it a redemption story. Uh, Jin Erso kind of has this more positive, hopeful vibe going for the rebellion. And he kind of goes all in with her on that. And yeah. he kind of, in, in, in a way, kind of drops the hatred. So I thought that's very Star Wars, very subtle. Not really over your, you know, not banging you over the head like Anakin's redemption story, but still like a subtle redemption story. So that was my main thing from watching. It was like, oh, cool. You know, he's really ticked off right now in this in this part in the story. The characters, I agree, feel like watching people. Like we were introduced to a lot of characters, actually, in just these three episodes. I don't think we're going to see many of them for the whole run of the show. But they were enough to let us know where his starting point is, what his existence is like on Ferrix, and where he came from. Like you mentioned with the uh, flashbacks, which feeds into another aspect that I loved about it was the world building. You know, the previous shows for Star Wars have spent a lot of time on places that we already know, like Tatooine. <laughs> and, and here uh, we got new planets. We got Morlana, Canari, and Ferrix. And they're not completely different type planets, but they give us something that Star Wars hasn't totally done great in past adventures, which is not painting a whole planet with one brush, you know, like the desert planet or whatever. You get the sense that these are planets where there's going to be multiple castes of society and, and some rich, some poor, whatever. And we just happen to see where Andor needs to go, which is not the <laughs> not the high end part of town. Yeah, but, blue collar junkyard workers yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I love I love it. The, the look yeah. of it was just incredible. All the the world building. There's I love any anything in Star Wars that adds to it is great. The, the strip mining on Canari looked awesome. It got my imagination going. You know, there was like the field with like the grown over equipment in it that they walked by. And then you can see the equipment kind of rusting away at the bottom of the pit. That was all cool stuff. And then I, like you said, the slow burn, I thought the pacing though, the way that these three episodes all kind of time out the flashbacks to combine with and or needing to leave Ferrix with Luthen at the same time that he, he leaves Canari with Marva. In both aspects, there's like an element of needing to get away <laughs> or, or maybe even in Canari's case, it like creates a bit of a problem because his, his sister was left behind there and there's really no way for him to say that. But still, it's not a super great existence that those kids had there. Yeah, that, that you're talking about the ending where they cut back and forth. That yes. was cool because it was like, yeah, so it's like it was the end of an era, end of his childhood. He's taken away and then at the end and then intercut with him going off to join the rebellion, kind of a new era uh, as well. I thought that was, again, subtle, but it's like, wow, that's cool. 
as a music guy, what did you think about the absence of a classic John Williams score? I was cool with it. I like this, the, the completely different feel of the show. I think it's more original that way. I think it would have been, I don't want to say too Star Wars-y, but I think, I think different is what we're going for on the show. So I was good with it. What about you? I mean, it stood out to me as a high point. Not that I have like tired of the classic orchestral melodic, like this is Princess Leia's theme kind of aspect of John Williams scoring the movies. And I know Michael Giacchino did Rogue One, but still this had elements of like percussion and synthesizer that were more consistent with thrillers in terms of like creating sort of like a tense pace or, you know, like ticking clock kind of aspect that you don't really get the same feeling with cellos and timpani and that kind of stuff that you get with an orchestra. So Yeah, and they mixed it up. There was a one thing that stuck out was the turtle shell droid guy. I like that guy. Yeah. Um it's a cool droid. But he kinda got his own little little theme song that sounded very much like a turtle music, if whatever that means. Uh, you know? And then he's walking through the junkyard and it, it was straight ripoff from Wally. That's Disney, right? Yeah. <laughs> Did you notice that too? Yeah. He definitely had a Wally vibe about him, especially going through that part where Andor has his hideout. Yeah, kind of an eighties retro robot voice. Enjoyed that. Uh, I wanted to move on to like some favorite scenes, which for me did include Andor with the little red droid. His name is B2 EMO, like B2 Emo. He's he's emotional. He's uh, he's goth. I don't know. I guess so. What I liked about that was there was you know that scene where he's convincing B. I think he just calls him B. That he needs to tell him a lie. That's important. I know it takes a lot of energy, but can you make a lie for me? I can lie. I have adequate power reserves. Don't tell anybody you saw me. Don't tell anybody you know where I am. That's two lies. Let's have both. But he takes a moment, he like puts his hand on the droid and he takes like some debris out of the droid's uh, joint. And in the Star Wars universe, there uh, is an attitude about droids. Not everybody is like Luke Skywalker with their droids. There's kind of like droid prejudice. Hey, we don't serve their kind here. What? Your droid. They'll have to wait outside. We don't want them here. Why don't you wait out by the speeder? We don't want any trouble. I heartily agree with you, sir. Knowing that he has this relationship with K2SO later, as demonstrated in the Rogue One movie, I don't know. I, I really liked seeing that that he seems to have always had this soft spot for droids. Did you, did you notice any, anything about that? That's a good point. You know, it kind of speaks to his character. I, and I thought it was funny how the droid, like apparently it takes more energy and processing power for him to lie. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious, like really good writing and interesting. He was a good character for what he was. And they showed the progression, like in the flashbacks when he appears at the end. Uh, he's in pretty good shape, you know, but several years on, lack of maintenance, lack of resources, and he's in pretty rough shape. He's got a very shitty battery, <laughs> you know, by the, by the end of our time with him. You know, we haven't talked about the bad guys, and I think they're just so good. This Inspector Karn uh, guy, he's yeah. just really... He's the real deal. You know, he's a true believer, as is his junkyard dog. What was it? The Scottish uh, yeah. Scotty Mosk. Sergeant, Sergeant Mosk. Mosk, yeah. So they, they were cracking me up. And I, so I really liked that scene in the beginning where um, they're like, ah, oh, we got two get dead guys. And the guy's like, ah, close the door, go into cover-up mode, you know. Let's start spinning a narrative about how heroic these guys were, fool the weak-minded public, and make, him, make themselves look good to their superiors. 
Yeah. <laughs> and just that whole culture of climbing the corporate ladder, you know, and that's all they care about. No, they were killed in a fight. They're in a brothel, which we're not supposed to have, the expensive one, which they shouldn't be able to afford, drinking Rivnold, which we're not supposed to allow. Both of them supposedly on the job, which is a dismissible offence. They clearly harassed a human with dark features and chose the wrong person to annoy. I suspect they died rushing to aid someone in distress. Nothing too heroic, we don't need a parade. They died being helpful. Something sad but inspiring in a mundane sort of way. I just thought that was great. In the scene where, with Karn where he, he gave his first evil, awkward pep, pep talk. <laughs> and he's trying to motivate the troops, you know? Yeah. And it's like, that's just not his style. Like, you, you saw him do pretty well when he's yelling and using fear and intimidation. Oh, it's too much for you. Let me know. I'm sure somebody wants to chair. Like in the earlier in, the, in that episode. But inspiration, not so much. Yeah, it's not really, really his style. So I thought it was um, a good setup for an arch nemesis to Cassian, clearly. He's probably big enough to be like a season one bad guy. And I'm interested to see where the events of these first three episodes go, because, you know, the boss said, leave it alone. And in fact, the boss has been through this so much that he read the situation perfectly with only a little bit of information. And he knew what to do because they want to, he at least wants to keep his head down when it comes to Imperial Review, et cetera, et cetera. But Karn is out to make a name for himself. You know, he wants to stand out a little bit. He's got the redone piping and tailoring on his on his uniform. So now he's got to explain how a couple of guys got blown up and a ship got blown up and all these, all these other things when the boss said, stand down. The uniforms were cracking me up because I was like, oh, this is kind of a slightly younger empire and they're, they kind of have cheap uniforms. But I guess they're, they're like a, kind of a subcontractor to the empire. Is that your take? Something like that. I think they... They're tied into a large corporation, and there are areas in the Star Wars galaxy that have larger corporate influence on them than does, say, the Empire. Even though the Empire may be like the reigning law-administering body in the galaxy, in terms of those local areas, those corporate functions probably run the police, run the, the government to an extent, the local government, even though they may still answer up to the empire. And I think who they work for is one of those corporations. See, that's cool because it, it makes it more complex and layered, like more realistic. There's some history there that, that those people, you know, got into power and the empire is trying to assimilate like the Borg, but it's going to take a while. Um, yeah. And at first I thought maybe that inspector karn was like are we supposed to know this guy like is he someone that gets choked by vader like later on or something <laughs> but i don't think so i don't know i don't think so either and in fact his smug little face looked um reminiscent of someone that i've already you know seen on something but i looked at him on imdb and i just i don't recognize anything else that he comes from so maybe he's just got a very punchable face <laughs> His acting is spot on. Yeah, he's doing a great job. He's, like you mentioned, in the moments, in, in small moments, when he can exert his influence just 
because he's in charge, he looks suitably like someone that would do that. But in the moments when he's trying to inspire people just with words, you could almost see those guys like checking their phones if they if they had Star Wars phones. Now, this may be a dark admission, but um, I have to admit that when Andor decided that with the first sentry accidentally killed, that his only really good option was to kill the second one, I kind of came to that same conclusion too, at the same time that the, that the second guard did, the second sentry, when he starts sniveling for his life. I knew it was going to happen just because we've, we've seen Andor do this same kind of thing before, but this is five years before the Battle of Yavin. And so that's incidentally what that means. If, you're, if you've been watching this wondering what five BBY, what does that mean? That means before the Battle of Yavin. The Battle of Yavin is when they blow up the first Death Star, and that has been a kind of a mile marker for Star Wars timekeeping since they've been keeping track of events there. So when things happen before or after the Battle of Yavin is uh, how they keep track of stuff. So anyway, with the rain coming down and, you know, he shot him basically in like the eye socket from the angle that we saw and just the decisiveness of it. And the set was immaculate um, with like the gravel and the the overhead sparse lighting and all of it just really came together to create something that if he wasn't using a blaster, if he was using just like a, a revolver with the serial number filed off, it would have still held just as much weight, you know, with me, with me in terms of feeling like, like a real event. That POV shot that as he was walking in the, in the alleyway, and you hear them talking, like taunting him. Yes. And, and they kept it on him as, he, as, he's, as he's walking. That was a cool original shot. And yeah, I agree. That whole sequence was pretty good. Good start to the show. Should have left well enough alone, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yep, for sure. Like uh, Inspector Karn would have never sent those guys after him. I bet you a lot of people are going to die thanks to these two jackasses making the decision to hassle Cassie and Andor that day. Yeah, that's right. We're going to see. What's another one of your favorite scenes? The scene where, I guess you could say, where Marva, who was kind of like his mom, then we found out later she was like a scavenger or something and kind mm -hmm. of rescued him. Yeah. And the it was episode three was called Reckoning. And she said, this is what a reckoning sounds like as people were kind of banging on the, the metal together. It's kind of one of those things. The, these these thugs have been terrorizing these people, but they kind of band together. They're kind of blue collar workers, and I just thought it was really cool how you contrasted the smug arrogance of those pseudo imperials, and then it really shifted at a certain point where they realized, well, we're basically like the guards at the prison, and we're outnumbered, and you're, they're, they're kind of, you're kind of screwed. You know, mm -hmm. I thought that was really cool and just worked really well. You know, they tied up his ship. That was one of my favorite scenes also was Brasso sabotaging the ship, which, by the way, looked like a Clone Wars era L-A-A-T. Yeah, like a troop, a clone troop transporter, yeah. Yeah, just sort of like a newer generation or like a cheaper variation that didn't have like the bubble side guns, but still built on that same chassis, if you will. It's cool to see, because if you remember like in Rogue One, on the prison planet where they find Jyn Erso... They've relegated the juggernaut uh, wheeled vehicles to be like prison transports. But, you know, in episode three, they were frontline tanks. But now they're just kind of out of use and still 
operational, so they use them on the prison planet. I kind of like to see that progression of the technology in the in the universe. Like, I'm sure if I was even more attentive, I could have noticed, since they were working at a ship-breaking yard, what some of those pieces might have come from. If you really wanted to nerd out, you probably could. <laughs> or like how they had the, um, the air traffic control screen for mm-hmm. that you saw from, like, episode four. Yes. Like, and it just looked like cheesy props. It's like, oh, that, that wouldn't be functional. And then they tried to make it look like it was functional. <laughs> right. that was cool. They overlaid <laughs> the ships on what you could assume might have been, like, authorized travel lanes. Right. Whereas in the old movies, they couldn't do that. So they just had a guy, I don't know if you remember, he had, like, a pin with, like, a light on it. And he would just, like, touch different spots. <laughs> <laughs> on the map with like the crossing lines and, and the circles and all that stuff. And it, it looked like it was meant to do something. But as a kid, you're like, what is that even supposed to be showing? But yeah, now they've overlaid it with air traffic control type information and it looks functional somehow. Uh, yeah, those were all my favorite scenes from the first three episodes. I mean, there were, I'll probably end up watching these all over again before the next one because the way that it's shot it gives you more information on another pass, you know, like I went and watched the first one again already. And in the brothel scene, when they're waiting at the bar, I already know that the two sentries are going to hassle Cassian. So I didn't need to focus on Cassian talking to, I guess she's a madam of some sort. And they frame those two in the right half of the screen. So the sentries are in the background in the left half of the screen so I could watch them and they proceed to make gestures and small talk and shit kind of pointing at Cassie and like, who's this guy? Who's he think he is? You know, all that stuff. And it was kind of interesting to see that that persisted, like their behavior toward him wasn't just like, you know, teasing him once. It was like persistent throughout before they started hassling him in the alley. Speaking of subtle details, did you notice how that bar was very much shaped like the Moss Sizely Cantina? It seems to be a Star Wars thing to have a, a U-shaped bar. Yeah. Well, and it's also a very Star Wars thing to have a bar. How many bars have we been to in Star Wars? You know, for a, a show that's, or, or a universe that, for the most part, is meant to be compatible with children and children's, you know, level of entertainment, given the kind of the fantastic nature of the subject matter and the core story, the the hero's journey story and all that kind of stuff. In this, this is a little more R-rated. You know, we start out in in what is definitely a red light district. There weren't red lights, but you don't need them to be that. (laughs) You know, the, the beings with the little bubble windows, they weren't advertising the latest death sticks. They were advertising companionship, adult companionship, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was great. It was but yeah, great. the bar, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, in episode one, episode two, episode seven. Came off very dark. Yeah. Hey, well, what did you think of the, the flashback stuff? Did you notice the, what did you think about how they, there was no, like the dialogue was not transcribed for us. It was apocalypto Mel Gibson style. At first I was, I was like, where's the translation? But then I was like, okay, they're going to make it pretty obvious what's going on here. Because if you've seen, say, like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome or something, then you've seen something like this before, you know? So what they are saying is not as important as what they're doing. Yeah, I was curious who the older girl, who was like the leader of the hunting, the hunting party, if you will, who got killed, 
like what was her because at first she didn't want Cassian to go. Yeah. And I was trying to figure that out. I don't know what this. I I did. I assume they're not related or anything, but maybe they are. Maybe they are. Um, it could just be he hasn't fulfilled his rites of passage just yet. Like the other older boy slapped his hand away when he tried to put on the war paint. I got the sense, given that like the textiles that they wore were not rags, they were dirty, but they looked like actual manufactured clothing. I got the sense that they were probably the leftover kids from when the mining operation went south. Okay. And so then you think this ship situation is separate. So I want to get into this with you because this, this I think is a, is a mystery that's going to play out. The planet was declared a toxic, you know, zone and made off limits by the empire. But they said that that was a Republic ship. Yeah. They said that exactly. Marva said it was a Republic ship. So it's clearly, it's it kind of stinks of a cover up. Yeah. Um, and now at that time it would be during the clone wars before uh, order 66. So like you said, it would be Republic, but then credit to our boy, uh, Star Wars theory out there. Uh, I didn't, I didn't catch this. I did see this logo and I was like, what is that? But I didn't catch it. I don't know if you did, but the staff, if you will, on the ship, the astronauts that, uh, shot at the kids had a logo on their uniforms. That is the CIS logo, the Confederacy of Independent Systems founded by Count Dooku. Yeah. So at the, the meeting on Geonosis and Attack of the Clones, that was the founding of that organization. And that's their logo headed by Dooku, you know, and then I guess they seem to have been poisoned. Like they had kind of a yellow look. And so this reminded me of, I don't know if you're a brown coat, Paul, if you're down with a firefly. I've seen all the episodes. I've seen the movie. Um, I'm not, a, I have, I only dabble in the serenity. Very cool. I'm a big fan, but yeah, it just reminded me of that. Cause there was that, that whole plot where the like from Reaver the movie home world. Yeah. It was yes. like a normal planet, but then there was like this Wuhan style lab and something bad happened. And then all of a sudden uh, it, it invented these Reavers that like kind of zombie madmen. This reminded me of that. So maybe that's what's going on. There's some sort of bio weapon type thing happening. I just recently, out of just no good reason at all, turned on classic Trek and I randomly picked an episode and I from the first season. And the one I picked was the one where they beam down to a planet that is very much like Earth, except all the adults are dead. They figure out that there's been some release that they, you know, they bioengineered something, they released something that caused very slow aging. But once you reached puberty, or if you'd already gone through puberty, then you rapidly aged and died. So I think we're talking about very similar tropes <laughs> in all three cases. You know, Joss Whedon's uh, Reaver planet, I forget the name, it was Archangel or something like that, I can't remember. The Star Trek planet. And then this, because I'm thinking these kids are descendants of them, but there's no adults. So what could have happened? Well, maybe, maybe. Because if it's if it, the Empire takes over after the Republic, and that would only be in a couple of years from what we saw in these flashbacks, given what you noticed about the Confederate. Yeah, Confederacy of Independent Systems, yeah, the CIS. Con- the CIS ship. Then it makes sense that, that the Empire would want to move in and be like, so, 
yeah, this is mining operation. Let's get that going again. And then very shortly they might figure out, no, actually that's a bad <laughs> idea. We shouldn't do that because all the adults die there or something to that effect, right? Like you notice, like those people, those astronauts you mentioned, they don't look that banged up to all be dead. Yeah, they look discolored. And then you had Marva and her, her sidekick. Uh, masks, they had right? masks on, right? Yeah, yeah. And they said, no, it's cool. And then, of course, Cassian didn't die. He didn't, something strange has happened and that's going to be, I'm sure we'll learn the answer maybe in this season or maybe the next. Yeah. Well, why don't we talk about some of our enduring questions for what's coming up? That's a good question. Will we find out more about Canari? Is it important to find out more about Canari? We know that why the whole reason he ran afoul of the sentries on Morlana is that he was looking for his sister. So he may need to trace backwards more in order to get more information. So that may mean getting closer to Canari again. We don't know how much investigative work he's done so far. Something led him to that brothel there, but he may still need to start over or, or, or uh, pursue another line or wind up back there. I don't know. That's going to be a point. And is he going to, another question might be, is he going to just going to go all in with the rebels all of a sudden, or is he going to push back? I bet um, he's not a joiner. Yeah, not so much a joiner. <laughs> not right away, no. Something doesn't strike me as like a a, a guy, like I, I think that he's probably somewhat loyal to his friends, but if you noticed, like he owed a lot of people money and people liked him, but they weren't going to be able to commit to helping him because they knew that they'd get screwed. So what about Ferrix itself? He made some promises to come back to Ferrix to maybe right some wrongs, pay some debts. Do you think he makes his way back there? We we have five years between now and when we know he dies. We have 21 more episodes, in fact. I mean, putting my practical hat on, I don't think they're just going to develop those characters like Bix and everything without bringing them back. <laughs> so, yeah, I think so. Uh, but my main question, Paul, going yeah. into the next episode... That freaking box, the Imperial hack box device. The NS9, blah, blah, blah. That, I don't know about you. That was giving me anxiety that they didn't get the box. It's like, get the freaking box. <laughs> Maybe they'll go back for the box. It didn't seem that important to Luthen, which no. feeds into my another question I have, which is how did Andor wind up on Luthen's you know, radar in the first place that he would expose himself out in the open to come and get this guy under the pretense of getting this really what sounds like exclusive contraband. If I understand it, it you put it in your ship and I bet it, it makes your ship read like an Empire ship. I, th I thought they said it was it could detect uh, Imperial ships like all over the place, like for to a certain distance. That might but, be something something that hooks into your ship radar that makes it very imperial instead of illegally doing it. Since it's a legal part, it would be almost like you were really in at an imperial ship, but you don't. I got the sense that Luthen is in the recruitment department and not the hardware department. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? He's a talent scout. I don't know that that's very important or whether it will come out, but we we know that Andor has not been living his best life for a while. And so just what it was, given the conversations that Bix has had with him that, that made it so that he wanted to come and get, not even Bix, he wanted to come get Andor. Maybe, maybe it is that nature of, of not really having solid foundation with where he's at that makes him so perfect to be who we know that he's going to be because no one's going to really miss him. 
that's maybe part of the talent is yes, you can walk into an imperial installation and act like you own the place. That is a needed talent. But also there's something about armies sending warriors off that will be missed if they die. That is a bad look. It's possible that Cassian will just go all in with this, uh, you know, you want to fight these bastards for real. Um, he may just be like, I like this guy. Let's do it. Maybe. I mean, Luthen will need to give up a little bit more than he has so far. And it may be a real dance in terms of them getting to the point where they trust each other enough. Yes, they have fought together. That's an important first step, especially in Star Wars, to uh, break down those barriers. And they've ridden on a speeder bike together, which is a very close quarters arrangement. <laughs> I like how that guy, that actor, you know, he's been in other stuff. But he's Stellan Skarsgård? Yeah. He's just got perma-pissed-off face. <laughs> yeah. Well, he is an actor, man. He's He was in uh, Thor. You know, he's in the uh, Avengers movies. He plays uh, Dr. Selvig. He plays Vladimir Harkonnen in the Dune movies under a lot of makeup. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's Bill and Alex's dad. So he is Pennywise, the clown's dad. <laughs> and He's good. Yeah, well, and it's it's always uh, extra impressive when they bring someone with kind of a storied past to Star Wars. You know, Diego Luna, he has a lot more in like Spanish-speaking movies and TV than maybe we're, you and I, are, are, are aware of. Um, I'm looking at his credits and a lot of them are in Spanish. So I think he's got a pretty maxed out reputation in terms of notoriety within uh, Spanish speaking culture, but, but less so probably in, in English, but you know, he's, he's been around for sure. But when you bring in like Stellan Skarsgård, it's a little like Woody Harrelson in, in Solo, you know, someone whose face you've seen for a long time in a lot of places. Like I enjoyed Woody in, in, in Solo also. Yeah, there's got to be a list out there of people we want to see in Star Wars, like Matthew McConaughey or something like that. <laughs> that would yeah, be interesting. Yeah. You know, just weird, you know, like you said, personalities that come in. That's interesting. You know, one person that threw me for a loop was Tim. When they first showed Tim, he was the front office guy at Bix's shop. The rat. Yes, the rat, who I call the rat, like, just as soon as he came on screen, pretty much. I thought he might have been a spy, actually. But I thought for a second he was Chris O'Dowd from the IT crowd. <laughs> yeah. He looks just like him. And since the other guy from the IT crowd, Richard Iowate, was a voice actor in The Mandalorian, I thought, well, that might be kind of cool. A little IT crowd synergy there and like a cameo. But no, it wasn't him. And I don't think this is going to be a show where there's going to be any cute cameos. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think they're going to throw in any uh, uh, guys from NSYNC or anything on this. This I think this is going to be serious acting from top to bottom. Nothing, nothing cute about it. I, I want to know when are we going to meet K2SO? Oh, wow. He's going to be in it. He's got to. Okay. It's well advertised that this show leads up to when we first meet Cassian at the beginning of Rogue One. Remember that first scene in Rogue One? He's walking to meet that informant that he has to end up killing, which sets the tone for, for Cassian's character. 
my my expectation is that by the 24th, the end of the 24th episode is going to be him walking off screen, walking to go talk to that guy is the way that they have portrayed the run of this show. Another Firefly connection with uh, Wash from Firefly, right? Exactly. Alan Tudyk, who is an amazing actor, you know, on-screen actor, motion capture actor. He did the K2SO uh, motion capture. But those two had a pretty close uh, relationship, you know, the way that he he really only wants to listen to Cassian, you know? <laughs> do, you, do you remember that scene where he was... He was pretending to be an imperial droid still and not reprogrammed and he uh he he hit uh cassian and said you know watch your mouth or there's another one there's another shiner for you or something like that yes where are you taking these prisoners these are prisoners yes where are you taking them i am taking them to imprison them in prison he is taking us to quiet there's a fresh one if you mouth off again we'll take them from here that's okay if you could just and uh i learned that was improv by him and cassie and uh diego luna was like uh if you look you can actually see he's laughing <laughs> i am going to need to watch rogue one at least like six more times before the end of this season i think just to pick up on those little details like that because I think there's a lot there to find still that, you know, they had to kind of work backwards in terms of getting this character to that point and kind of working inside that grittier interpretation of the universe. So I think there's still a lot to find there in terms of things that will inspire the events of this show. You mentioned the flashbacks. Do you think we're done with flashbacks? Do you think like they kind of serve their purpose in the first three episodes to get us, like you said, that kind of editing trick of Cassian moving on to new eras in his life? I don't think so. I think they're going to bring it back. So I think they're going to tell the story of what happened there on that on Canari. It'll be interesting to see what they pick and choose to show us. Like if we're off of Ferrix and say, you know, Marva is out of it and maybe it's not as important where her partner landed. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Because um, that's kind of a question mark, you know, by the uh, by the time Andor is a grown man, that guy's out of the picture. Is it important to know what happened to him or just that he's not there anymore? But what else do we need to know about his background? You know, I think we can assume that he probably worked at the shipbreaking yard with Brasso. You know, mm-hmm. I think yep. we can assume that that looks like sure. be the, the big business in town. Didn't covered for him. Didn't he cover for him? Like, yeah. Uh... Yeah, that was a really interesting like thing. Like that they they had like the opening, they had the area with the gloves, they had like the transports going. A very company town, like the wall with the gloves in this town that looks like you might wanna watch out for your stuff, but something about the way that they hung those gloves out in public like that was like no one touches those gloves. Yeah, like a status symbol or something like that. Yeah, or just like you wouldn't want to be found with the gloves if you stole someone's gloves. <laughs> you're better off stealing something else than someone's gloves. Just the, ah, the world building was just like everywhere in this, you know, nothing, nothing was left to chance or, or accidental feeling, you know, just really everything was put into it. A couple more questions uh, before we wrap up here. We know Mon Mothma figures into this show. Genevieve O'Reilly, who kicked off her portrayal way back in the episode three, Revenge of the Sith. He played Mon Mothma, or she played Mon Mothma, and that you can see her most prominently in scenes that were deleted, unfortunately. But when they needed to come back and make uh, Rogue One, she came back and portrayed the same character again several years later. 
11 years later. And she went on to do like voice acting for a show called Star Wars Go Rogue, which I didn't see. Star Wars Rebels. And now she's back to play Mon Mothma in Andor. If you're wondering who cares, well, she's the one in Return of the Jedi who is basically leading the attack on the second Death Star. She's the one that sets up the big meeting. She's basically in charge of the whole rebellion. She is she outranks uh, Leia in the rebellion by the end of it. So she's a big deal, and they're going to tell some of her story here. When do you suppose we run into her? I would predict uh, episode four, because we're uh, with uh, Luthen. I think he's going to take us to Rebel headquarters. It would make sense to bring her in, but how her story, because she is functionally, you know, an imperial senator, very tight rope to walk for her because she's <laughs> the leader of the, of the anti-government movement, but she also works for the government. Did you ever see the deleted scene from Revenge of the Sith where they had Natalie Portman and uh, Bail Organa yes. and her, and they were basically like, yeah, we're putting together an organization, so... Yeah, that was pretty relevant. So we know it's already going down from that point on. Yes, exactly right. So she's a big deal. She's got to figure into the story how how someone that is very, I won't say low level, but he's definitely boots on the ground in terms of being a, we know that he's going to be a spy. He's going to be a hitman if necessary, of an operative, a field operative for the rebellion by the time Rogue One starts. Um, how the leader of the entire operation figures in with someone on that level. I can't wait to see because ordinarily, you know, the president doesn't need to interact with spies, but she's part of this story. I wonder if they're going to, you know, there's going to be a new conflict besides what we've already been set up with. Like, uh, could it be related to the Death Star or something else the Empire is up to that they have to respond to? Right. It might be a little early to get full on to the to the Death Star, although it would be kind of cool if there was just a, a a sentence or something mentioning Orson Krennic or a project that they need to know more about, but they don't have time for right now. You just something to let us know that the Death Star is happening right now. It's just not their priority. You know, they, they snuck in in Attack of the Clones, the uh, Geonosians, the insect guys, that meeting where they formed that CIS organization. Yeah. They showed that they're the ones who invented the honeycomb-like structure of the Death Star type thing. I guess they invented it because they had like a hologram of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where those plans originated from. So maybe they will tie that in since they're going in, I guess. Wow, that could be interesting. Yeah, getting all the timelines straight and all that is going to be key in people's minds. That's I think it's going to be important that they keep flashing up where they're at in both geography and time. And they did a very good job of that here in this in these first three episodes. Which leads me to my next and final real big question is to accomplish what they've set out to do, which is cover apparently five years in 24 episodes... I think they're going to have to do some time jumps. What do you think? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a, they, they surely will. If I had to guess, they might do it at the end of the season, into the next season, but they might do a time jump right here since this was his early story. Um, you know, we could start episode four and all of a sudden he's an established rebel spy. You know, we've seen trailers and, I'm, and I've 
I've treated myself to like, I think the first main trailer and I've only watched it once because I wanted this show to just be like brand new, like a feast for my little Star Wars fanboy brain. <laughs> but I do recall that there were shots of him in what looked like maybe Imperial boot camp or, or something like that. So I think we got to see him get to that point where he's he's a functioning operative because I don't think he just he's joining the Empire just uh, on his own steam there. I think he's doing that for a purpose. And it may be to get K2SO for all we know. Pulling a Han Solo, if you will. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, was there anything about the show that, that you found sort of like a drawback that you were like, well, I could have done that better or um, or anything anything like that? I, you know, one of my thoughts coming into the show, my favorite part about Star Wars is Jedi and Sith, right? But, and, and we're not going to, we're probably not going to get any of that. Probably Although, not. it is possible that I wonder if they'll continue on with this plot line from Kenobi of the path. And maybe we'll see the rebels assisting rogue Jedi out there. That would be kick ass. But yeah, that was my only kind of concern for the show but that's kind of i i'm kind of happy to have a big boy pants show that's like a little bit you know <laughs> like not so kiddish um yeah. because we're not you know hey we're gen extras man you know <laughs> absolutely i mean there's a youtube critic out there his name is the critical drinker he has a lot of negative things things to say about a lot of stuff which is why i watch him because he's funny but he had a a panel the other day where he had other other people like him commenting on the show and you know as is just so common in star wars fandom um there's sort of like a well as long as disney's in charge then i'm gonna only find negative things to say about it kind of approach that people have and to my surprise my my guy the the critical drinker was like you know what so far i'm impressed and i'm gonna give it time before i come out and say whether or not people should watch it but that was really a nice moment for me that that's that someone that has found a lot of fault in things so far um agrees with me that this is something new this is different this is you know you may have actually watched the mandalorian and not like this because the tone is so much more grown up not that not that the mandalorian's for necessarily for kids i mean he's a bounty hunter he's gonna kill people and he does he kills if you think about it, there's that episode where he just nails uh, like a dozen Jawas, you know, and and he and he like vaporizes them with with that uh, with that rifle he has. So I'm not saying that that's necessarily less mature or something like that, but there's something about the way that this is being presented. Like you said, it it reads much more like an adult show, and I'm and I'm totally down with that. All right, I have smashed the subscribe button on the uh, critical drinker. You know, he may he may grind on you, but he's Scottish. He's funny. Um, he had this great bit on the Batgirl TV show that was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> he, he's, are, are you allowed to say that? You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> but that's a long way of saying so far, man, I cannot think of what I would wish that they had redone about it. I'm here for the slower pace, developing the character. I am okay that the first three episodes resulted in basically just creating the inciting action for the first season. 
you might have people argue that, well, maybe you could have done that in the first episode. Well, they released all of them in one day. So it's almost like you got a movie to launch the whole show. And I'm okay with that. You know, that remains to be seen if maybe that same approach to pacing is going to be a problem later. I don't know. But so far, so good. Absolutely. Really enjoyed it. I think if uh, Disney learned that what, uh, you know, like I said, we were like heroin addicts and they need to be creating shows like The Walking Dead that just don't end and just keep going. But it's Star Wars. Um, (laughs) I don't know that I wouldn't watch that show for whatever amount of time they managed to keep it refreshed. Yeah, well, I was like with The Walking Dead when it was good and didn't suck, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I stopped watching it. They did that over six or seven years. I know that it, they're going into year 10, but that that's, that's an intentional observation. Uh, <laughs> those first few years, it was like appointment television, you know. <laughs> Thanks for joining me again to kick off this new season of a new Star Wars show, Mark. Enjoyed it, Paul. Take care, buddy. If people wanted to connect with uh, Mark, where would they find that information? Jiggy Nut. Jiggy Nut on Twitter. Are you an Instagram guy? No, I'm not. Should I be? Nah, that's for, (laughs) yeah. I I don't know how to use it properly myself. But I have been posting some um, images uh, that I've created using like this AI art engine called Mid Journey. Oh, cool. Interesting. Yeah, on on Instagram. on uh, It's called Daily Review is my handle on on there. But uh, the Imperial Mining Colony in particular was uh, inspirational uh, this past week. So I whipped up a couple of AI assisted images on there that reminded me of what you might find if you stumbled across an Imperial mining facility. Well, I, for one, I, for one, applaud our, our AI robot overlords. It's scary what AI is doing right now, what it's capable of, what you think it's capable of and what it is actually capable of might be vastly different (laughs) my neighbor just uh, got the full self-driving beta from tesla yeah and we loaded up the kids and we went on a ride with this thing driving itself on aggressive mode it was pretty cool it was pretty interesting a little glitchy but uh pretty impressive all your neighbors still have their dogs and kids and stuff afterwards well we almost ran over some deer because i don't think it could it didn't know what these little deer they were nursing and it was like, oh, it was a little too close for comfort. <laughs> I don't think it knows deer yet. But, but I've heard that. Things that dart beyond, that are like smaller than a certain size are uh, not great for the camera system yet. Mm, yeah, they got to they gotta fix that one. But it's pretty cool. Anyhow, um, yeah, I'm, I'm available on uh, Twitter at PaulVDaily or PodClubhouse.com. If you like this podcast, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do that for this feed, the main Pod Clubhouse feed, whatever. Just subscribe to it so you'll know when a new episode comes out. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open and we'd love to hear from you.